Stanford University. Today I'll be talking about, about biochar and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a history lead-in. Um, the, the most recent interest in biochar was really sparked by the rediscovery or reappreciation of so-called terra preta do Indio uh, soils. Um, these are soils that are in the central Amazon, can be found throughout the Amazon, in fact, um, are pitch dark, as you can see here, in contrast to the uh, adjacent soils, and seem to be very, very fertile. Um, and uh, they have been created a few thousand years ago. Uh, and, and the reason why they are so dark is before, because of their high char or charcoal content. So that, that rediscovery uh, about 10, 15 years ago uh, sparked an interest um, that has increased over the last decade into having a closer look uh, what this char can do. A, a carbon that was um, laid down thousands of years ago is still there and has a long-lasting uh, sustainable effect on soil productivity. So that's, that ought to be something to, to give a close look to. We could have known actually quite earlier, um, there were some Spanish explorers in the 1500s that um, reported back to the Spanish court that there are these fantastically rich soils in the, in the central Amazon, a, a place where there shouldn't be any rich soils, uh, as, as the textbooks say. Um, but um, he didn't really uh, make any inroads with these claims, um, and, and that was long forgotten. And it took uh, another 400 years, uh, 300, 400 years, uh, and the, until the 1870s that the, the, the next researchers came and described these uh, fertile soils. Um, Charles Hart and his student uh, Herbert Smith in the 1870s and 1880s. And then it took another uh, 60, 70, 80 years until this guy described it in the 1960s. Uh, and only the last 10 years we, we have um, seen that there's, uh, that there's um, a, a renewed interest in that, largely because we are better able to understand what exactly happens in these soils and what makes these soils tick. And that is, that is what we now dub as biochar or black carbon, biomass-derived black carbon. What is biochar? Biochar is a material, a biomass material that has been changed profoundly by uh, thermal degradation, heating in the absence of oxygen uh, from cellulose, lignins, sugars into so-called aromatic carbons, fused aromatic carbon rings uh, with peculiar shapes and forms um, that morphologically, macroscopically still look like a plant cell or a, uh, a hazelnut shell will still look like a hazelnut shell, but it's black. And, and chemically it has profoundly changed. And that makes all the difference in the world uh, for how it behaves uh, in, in the environment. But it's a, a rather ubiquitous substance. Uh, it's not restricted to the central Amazon uh, or your barbecue. It's actually found uh, almost anywhere. Um, it's, it's a necessary and inevitable um, product of fires in the environment. And fire has been part of the environment throughout the, the history of the world. Uh, so that whether it's, it's uh, accidental fires, it's cyclic fires in the boreal forests or in the savannas, or it's actually fires for land clearing uh, in more modern times. Um, and that means that, that biochar, char-type substances can be found almost anywhere in the world, also outside here in, in your, your backyard. Um, there's not a lot of information that's coming out in the last few years slowly. Uh, we did a larger assessment uh, in, in Australia because there has been a, a, a greater interest over the last 20 years because they have high, um, have high fire incidents. Um, a larger survey throughout the, the uh, um, Australian continent showed that about 20% of their organic carbon in soil 
is made up of, of this type of char carbon. That's quite a bit if you compare it, um, the, the, these carbon stocks with, for instance, fossil fuel emissions. So, so this type of, of carbon makes, makes up a large pool of carbon uh, in, in the stock of, of, uh, of Australia and, and other places. Also, a uh, recent study uh, that, that um, uh, we did is on, on analyzing all soils housed at the World Soils Archive in Israel, the Netherlands, showed that there's an almost any soils that you can think of globally, um, there's black carbon, biochar char type black carbon to varying extents, um, but there's not a hugely clear trend uh, in terms of latitude, whether we are talking Fireland or, or Alaska. Uh, it's part of the, the carbon cycles uh, almost anywhere on all continents to varying extents. And it will be very interesting to, to deepen um, that understanding. Uh, but for now, it's important just to carry away the message that, that these types of, of, of substances are not alien to environment. Uh, they're part of, of nature's history um, anywhere, which I'll try to circle back now to, to why we are interested in, in the form of this type of energy seminar um, to, uh, to talk about biochar and, and pyrogenic carbon, um, because there is actually a, a energy, uh, an energy system called pyrolysis bioenergy uh, that is built on exactly that process, heating biomass in the absence of oxygen or under oxygen-starved conditions, which um, is used to drive off volatile carbons and transform them in, in several kinds of energy carriers, whether that's liquid energy through condensation, reforming to um, several kinds of uh, um, uh, gas carriers, uh, transformation into, into electricity with various kind of co-products. Uh, co um, the residual heat can be used to pre-dry and run the pyrolysis. Uh, and that, that process had, has a byproduct uh, that um, pyrolysis bioenergy experts uh, call a a waste product, which for me is, of course, as a soil scientist, is the main product and the energy is the core product, but I won't tell you that in an energy seminar. Um, and that, that uh, carbon can be returned to the soil, um, and I'll tell you a little bit more what it does in soil. But what that means is that, that from the 100% of carbon that you put into such a bioenergy system, half of it goes into an energy carrier system and can generate um, offset fossil fuels or, or uh, broadly speaking, uh, produce, produce energy, and the other half, roughly, of that carbon ends up in char that, under the system that I'm talking about, the biochar system, uh, can be returned to soil. Um, and, of course, it's an energy carrier, could be an energy carrier in itself, and I'll, I'll tell you some of, something about the energetics of that later. So why, why are we doing, or uh, just, just to, to deepen a little bit the understanding what happens during this process, so from, from the biomass that has about half of its carbon, uh, be, uh, sorry, half of its mass being, being carbon, during pyrolysis we lose about 75% of the mass, but only 50% of the carbon because the, the carbonaceous residue is very rich in carbon. Uh, so what we're driving off is actually most of it is hydrogen and oxygen um, generating uh, 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 the, largest, the larger share of the energy content uh, of the biomass uh, and remain with, with approximately half of the carbon in this carbonaceous product. And that, that makes, um, uh, from, a, from a life cycle perspective, as we see later, makes a lot of sense for looking at, at this as a climate change mitigation tool uh, linked to energy generation. And, and during this, this production, um, uh, during this pyrolysis, um, we get, a, as I said, profound change in, in the chemical structure to more aromatic carbon. 
uh, but also interestingly, there's, there's a structural aspect, a, a micromorphology aspect to it, um, whether we get amorphous carbon and at higher temperatures um, above 400, 500 degrees, uh, increasingly um, more ordered carbon structures. Uh, we drive off um, most of the hydrogen and, and most of the oxygen um, during that process. Uh, a big part of this story, why, why this is interesting in the context of climate change, uh, as well as the, the soil improvement aspects, um, uh, is the stability of, of the char. During that transformation from biomass to biochar, not only the chemistry changes, but uh, the material becomes much more recalcitrant against microbial decay. And that's, that's very important. We use, we use chars, charcoals in archaeological dating. We, we know that is uh, the, 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 the oldest and uh, usually the oldest portion of the soil carbon in the environment. Uh, but until recently, it has eluded um, the scientific community uh, to a large extent to actually put numbers on it. Um, and that, that um, is, is slowly being rectified. Uh, why is it so stable? One, one reason is definitely the, the uh, um, chemical recalcitrance of the material, the aromatic structure, but there's more to it. Uh, graphite, which is highly ordered um, sheets of aromatic carbon, are not all that stable. Uh, possibly they are, this is an old model from the, from the 40s, from Rosalind Franklin, but more modern models uh, look, uh, uh, try to explain the, the stability with more fo folded, possibly even fullerene type structures um, that, that I think warrant a lot closer look still. But another part of the story is the particulate nature of the material. Uh, most of the carbon that uh, is old and, and stabilized is, is uh, um, transformed or residual carbon from a litter, a leaf, a crop residue, a root decaying. Um, and those types of materials, this is an X-ray image um, uh, uh, using near-edge X-ray, fine structure spectroscopy. Uh, it looks as a, at a microaggregate that's just uh, maybe a, a 50 microns large. And what you see lighting up here is all carbon. Uh, and what you see along the, the, um, the, the pore structures and between the clay platelets, this is largely um, decomposed material from leaves. What you see, and this is uh, a, a uh, principal component analysis clustering together the, um, the aromatic black carbon portion of the same, the same uh, species. You see only lighting up here the char type of carbon. You see that most of that is, is actually distinct particles, and these are very old particles. Um, they're, they're hundreds of thousands of years old, uh, and they maintain their particulate nature, even if it's very small, even if it's just a micrometer or two micrometer large. Uh, and it's easily understandable that these are sort of their own aggregates um, that, that a microbe can't attack the interior. Uh, it can only attack the surface, and that, that lends stability to it. What that means is that the stability of, of char is really fundamental. Black carbon is fundamentally different than that of a falling leaf in soil. Um, and, and while we think about um, adding soil, uh, carbon to soil in terms of uh, plant residues, manures, or compost, we realize the more we put in, uh, we initially get more carbon stored in the soil, but that, that fizzes out at some point. Uh, we, get, we get a so-called um, saturation somewhere. And, and while the saturation is probably rarely reached in, um, in, uh, uh, in many soils, it, all, it means that it becomes less efficient uh, the more we put in. Um, and that is because there are, there are uh, certain types of mechanisms responsible for storing that carbon in soil, and that involves aggregation around the plant residues, um, 
stabilization on mineral surfaces and, and these type of, of processes. Fundamentally different is, is um, uh, biochar or any black carbon, which doesn't rely as much on these kind of mechanisms as ordinary plant matter relies. So that means we can break through this saturation and put more carbon in soil. Also, if we don't really need more carbon, uh, putting the return on our investment, the, the, the bang for our buck, uh, the, the amount of carbon in the soil per amount put in is, is vastly greater than, than with any other organic matter. Um, so that's, that's an important part of the story, which means that uh, residence times of, of black carbon and, and, and char in soil are, are much greater. Back to our uh, um, terra preta soils from the central Amazon that are uh, soils that have, have um, chars in them that are several hundred to several thousand years old. So these are very old char particles. But what you see here in these mineralization studies that look at carbon CO2 um, evolution over time, uh, those, those soils that, that have very little of this char carbon mineralize a lot of their carbon uh, over this incubation period, whereas those that have mainly char carbon mineralize very, uh, uh, sorry, a lot, whereas those that have char carbon uh, mineralize very little over the incubation period. And, and there was no function of, of the age of that carbon. And that's, that has a good corollary also in the chemical properties of these chars. So um, whether you have a 1,000-year-old or 5,000-year-old char, the stability seems to be pretty much the same. It's still getting mineralized over time, but the stability is uh, uh, pretty much the same and, and orders of magnitude greater than other carbon. So these are the, the first um, types of results that give us a handle on mean residence times. Um, there's another not so far away example, well, for you further than for me. It's from the East Coast, from, uh, from um, old charcoal kilns, where we looked at, at um, uh, remnants of charcoal making activity in the 1800s, when pig iron needed to be produced from charcoal. Uh, we don't do that anymore. Um, in, in this way. Uh, so they were abandoned in, in the 1880s when uh, there was a switch to anthracite. Um, and we can use these remnants. And basically, the story is the same that I um, told you last time. Uh, we see vastly lower mineralization over time uh, for those that have, have this char carbon in it. Uh, and we can calculate also for these 130-year-old chars mean residence time. And again, we come up with something in the order of 1,000 uh, years of mean residence time, which is sort of two orders of magnitude, one, uh, one and a half, two orders of magnitude greater than bio biomass carbon uh, without charring. Another approach is as a modeling approach uh, where we used um, uh, natural fires in Australia uh, where fire has been part of the, um, uh, uh, the ecosystem for, for thousands, if not ten thousands of years, uh, especially after the, the arrival of, of humans, which is estimated um, a few 10,000 years ago, uh, 30 to 50,000 years, somewhere in that, that order of magnitude. And, and where we, where one uh, thing we clearly see, we know how much was produced every year, and we can, we can plot that um, and, and see that um, we cannot explain current stocks of black carbon, which is this little thing here, um, with, with the amount that, was, um, that, that we would calculate when we add up all the production over time. Um, but, but we can fit those um, with various assumptions of, of uh, uh, and that's the gray shaded area of uh, production. And we end up with mean residence times that, again, are in the thousands of years. Another approach, same result, it seems. And you can incubate fresh biochars, as in this, this uh, study uh, from Yakov Kuziokov uh, with C14, dating, uh, C14 labels. 
Um, and, and we get, again, somewhere in the mean residence time of 2,000 years. So we're slowly getting, getting a handle on, on the, on the uh, uh, mean residence time. And this is by no means um, a, a, a universal value. Um, we have to be aware that there will be always different chars with, produced from different feedstock, produced in a different way, will, will vary to a certain extent. And, and this will still be um, subject of, of future and ongoing research to pin this down exactly. But what, what we know already that, that um, biomass that is, is um, pyrolyzed uh, charred at higher temperature, this year 600 degrees versus 300 degrees, the mass loss is, is significantly lower in this case for corn, um, gramineous uh, species um, uh, uh, for, for, for an incubation trial. But it seems for other, other types of uh, biomass that is not the case. Um, so there's, there's clearly some understanding that we, we still need to gain. And we, we think that we, we have some of the reasons already um, uh, pointed out in terms of the microstructure of, of these chars. <clears throat> but there are, there are multiple, um, uh, multiple mechanisms at play. Um, there's, there's a time component to this as well. Um, there's certainly an abiotic degradation at first, uh, just uh, oxidants, water, air, temperature, oxygen, um, you name it, is, seems to be a, a rapid oxidation uh, initially. Um, then there are several fractions. There might be a, a labile fraction that, that would be useful to, to isolate and understand separately from, from a stable fraction. We know when we look at, at uh, field sites, there will be a portion eroding. That might be even a, a large portion, as it turns out. There's certainly movement, other movement in, in the landscape. So we, we, we have to still look at, at various processes, um, and some of it might be protection in aggregates, but the vast majority uh, of it uh, is, is likely to be the, the chemical recalcitrance. Um, there are some, some issues in, in quantifying uh, mean residence times for, if, if we really want to go into screening of, of mean residence times for, um, uh, for biochar production as a carbon sink in, in the environment, um, because our ability to, to project uh, long-term stability from a few measurements um, over a short period of time is, is clearly flawed by, by uh, our ability to, to extrapolate. Um, and and that's, you can get um, uh, very different numbers uh, depending on, on how long you'd be able to measure. And the uncertainty rises if you have only a few points, a few years of, of measurements. Uh, your extrapolation is, is, um, can be a, a lot poorer um, uh, than, than having longer-term data. Uh, and there might be ways around it, and one of them is using H chars, as we've, as we've shown already, uh, that are, are much, um, uh, much more degraded and, and therefore give us a longer-term perspective on that. Uh, chars will, black carbon will decompose. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, and the question is, um, uh, how, how sensitive are the storage ability, how sensitive is the storage ability of chars to changes in the mean residence time? So how, how exactly do we need to know this? And, and when, when are we having a problem? So these are just some hypothetical graphs um, showing uh, the uh, mean residence time in blue, um, some lines, uh, and the proportion of labile carbon um, in red. And uh, on that side, you see the annual application in black, same here, um, and the mineralization uh, under different um, assumptions here uh, with, with a mean residence time of 10,000 years. You see there's very little uh, decomposing over a 500-year time frame. Um, and, and then you see 
this, this uh, mineralization increasing um, uh, under different assumptions. What you see here is that the, the proportion of labile, the, 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 these numbers are more sensitive or very sensitive to a, a, a relatively small change in the proportion of labile carbon, uh, but less sensitive um, on, on this more stable end to uh, a, an error in mean residence time. Whether, whether it's 500 uh, or 1,000 years mean residence time makes less of a difference than whether it's zero or 5% uh, labile carbon. Um, be that as it may, um, at some point, if we sum this up and look at, at the annual um, the net sequestration uh, per year over the next few hundred years, provided we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do this that long, then we'll realize that at some point um, we'll, we'll have a lot of mineralization from previous applied uh, char um, that, that needs to be compensated. That effect has little bearing on the, on the net sequestration, the annual net sequestration, if we have 10,000 or 1,000 years of mean residence time. Uh, but it makes quite a big difference if we have uh, somewhere in the 100 years of mean residence time, lower 100 years, or even 10-20% uh, of of labile carbon. But these are just hypothetical um, contemplations and, and, and they just frame the discussion in terms of uh, what, what do we need to look for? What's enough um, to, to make this a long-term solution? At, at some point, we'll, we'll reach something like a peak biochar, um, but that's, that's about 100 years uh, or 50 to 100 years um, in, in the future if we were to uh, deploy it um, on, a, on a grand scale. Um, there are some interesting dynamics on non-CO2 greenhouse gases that, that some of you might have heard about, um, and I, I just want to touch upon that, that briefly. Um, uh, carbon addition, nutrient additions always have to soil, always have some, some uh, uh, effects on, on the general um, carbon cycles and the uh, emissions of, of non-CO2 greenhouse gases. Interestingly, um, there have been some results um, that show uh, a reduction in nitrous oxide emissions after biochar additions to soil. Um, so here's a, um, a, a short incubation trial. Uh, usually nitrous oxide emissions is, is after uh, nitrogen additions are, are peaking relatively early and fizzing out um, relatively soon. Uh, but what you see is here versus the control in both soils that have been uh, used here, you see a significant reduction uh, with various chars um, biochars applied, um, and, uh, and that's, that's one study. There are other studies that have a more nuanced uh, result. Um, there's definitely a, a, um, a factor uh, of feedstock in here. Um, these are some results where we looked at, at the uh, nitrous oxide emissions and concentrations in headspace um, um, as a as an, uh, factor of, of uh, water-filled pore space, recognizing that somewhere around 80% water-filled pore space, we typically get the highest denitrification and the highest nitrous oxide production, um, which, which you can see here in, in this control incubation. Um, you see then various biochars um, underneath, and you see that, that a biochar produced from poultry litter um, generates quite a bit of nitrous oxide, even below a, a high saturation where uh, a control would not generate N2O emissions. Um, that's certainly interesting and uh, can possibly explain by, by the high amounts of, um, of nitrate in those, uh, in those poultry litters. However, if you char this, if you heat that poultry litter not to 350 but 550 degrees, you completely take care of this, this issue. 
Um, temperature seems to be a very important uh, factor, not only to the stability, as I showed earlier, but also other biogeochemical properties and, and effects um, on soil. Uh, so that, that, is, um, that is very interesting. Uh, Biochar soil improvement is an important aspect, not only because I'm a soil scientist and, and uh, grew up with that, but because it makes a big difference to the emissions, um, to the uh, economic viability, which I will talk to you um, in the later uh, part of this, uh, this presentation. Uh, but the soil improvements were clearly an early incentive in looking at biochar to begin with, and, and it sort of started with, with this type of insight, um, where uh, we looked at, at the, at the uh, organic carbon in soil, um, and we, we realized, and that's, that's a very old insight, that with more organic carbon in soil, we typically see uh, a greater ability of the soil to retain cations, nutrients. Um, uh, and, and this is uh, exemplified here in, in this parameter that, that soil science coined as, as cation exchange capacity. Um, that's, that's a very common type of finding. What is interesting here is that soils that have a lot of biochar in them don't only have more carbon very often, but they seem to be at the same amount of carbon. They have a greater value of, of this cation exchange capacity. So they have at the same type of carbon, the carbon seems to have not, there's not only more, but there's a different type of carbon in there, uh, a different type that does all the good things that we want soil organic matter to do in a much more efficient way. And that's, that's really important. So this type of information, um, when looking at that more deeply, lets us appreciate that there's not just uh, a type of carbon that hangs in there a longer pe a period of time, but it's a carbon that does the good things that we, we expect soil organic matter to do in a much more efficient way. Uh, but, but we have to realize uh, a few things, um, that, that we can produce very different chars from different feedstock and different, different, um, uh, different production conditions. And here, for some of the soil fertility parameter, parameters here, a, a, a graph showing what changes when, when you change the pyrolysis temperature, the heating um, uh, of, of the biomass. Uh, and I want just to direct you to one parameter, that's, that's the pH. Uh, the pH changes from somewhere around 4, and it can go even a little bit lower, I think it's the, the lowest point is 3 point something, um, up to, to 12 um, uh, when you heat it to 800 degrees. So that's a huge, huge difference. Uh, soils, um, if you're not familiar with that, soils, uh, typically, the, uh, if you look in a soil science textbook, uh, the optimum pH is somewhere between 5.5 and 6.5. A 4 is a very low pH. You don't want to have 4. Uh, 12 is a very high, you don't want to have that either. So we, are, we have a, a material that spans all the way from uh, too low um, to too high. So we have the ability to, to manage soil pH quite dramatically um, by producing chars just from the same feedstock just by varying the process conditions um, of, of the, uh, during pyrolysis. So that's a huge opportunity um, to, to uh, manipulate uh, this type of material. Um, and uh, I, I should point out also here from this graph um, that the cation exchange capacity that I, that I praised in the, in the former slide, actually from these, from these um, fresh chars that come right off, out of the pyrolysis, they're rather low. Um, and, and so far, um, most of them have been, the unadulterated have been quite, quite low. Um, but what seems to happen that, that uh, these chars, upon exposure to oxygen, 
uh, exposure to soil and microbial life uh, oxidize, oxidize um, in due course. Here you see, um, again, our, our um, charcoal remnants from, from the eastern U.S. Um, charcoal making uh, new chars have um, very low uh, cation exchange capacity of, of less than 20 millimoles per uh, charge per kilogram of material and a, what's called a, a high point of zero net charge, which is a bad thing because in the soil pH range uh, that we typically have, they don't have any ability to, to retain cations. Uh, but it seems um, when we incubate this material or we look at, at aged chars in the soil, um, these values increase dramatically, uh, in this case over 2,000 millimole charge and with a point of zero net charge less than three, which all means that, that these, soils have, uh, these charts have transformed uh, dramatically and, and are uh, now uh, have a greater ability than other organic matter to retain cations. Uh, so some things change, and, and um, that, that is very, very interesting. The, the, the outcome of that is uh, an often observed uh, better retention ability uh, in agricultural systems for fertilizers, which makes a, a big difference to the overall energetics and, uh, and emissions. Uh, what you see here is um, uh, a field research from, from several years of, of experimentation in Colombia uh, under corn. Um, the bars below zero are leaching losses. The bars above zero are plant uptake for calcium, magnesium, potassium, and nitrogen. Uh, what you see here, without uh, char additions and with char additions, that without char additions, you always have significantly greater um, losses of nutrients and lower uptake. Um, so those are, uh, with, with char, we were able to have a greater fertilizer use efficiency. More of the fertilizer that we added went into the crop, a lower loss, um, and therefore a higher, a greater yield. Um, these are our uh, uh, four years of data um, where we saw increasingly greater yields. Um, this, these are then in, in our, our fourth year, um, dramatically increased uh, yields um, of the corn. Um, so that's, there, there are some uh, uh, interesting aspects, but we, we, uh, we recognize that as, comes, as it comes to no surprise to an agronomist, uh, those um, results uh, are, of course, highly crop and soil specific. Uh, here are some results from a degradation sequence where um, uh, this shows a, a, soil, a soil sequence, a, a chrono sequence, a false time series. Um, of uh, soils after forest clearing. So soils that have been cleared just a few years ago from forest to soils that have been cleared 100 years ago. Not surprisingly, those soils that, um, that have been cleared just recently are still fertile. They produce a lot of yield. This is maize grain yield, uh, still um, above eight tons of grain per hectare. Whereas after 30, 40 years of continuous cropping, those yields are down uh, to, to uh, less than four tons even with full recommended fertilization. Clearly, the problem is here is carbon in soil. Uh, question is, can we do something about it? Um, and and the, the, uh, uh, the, the strategy here was to, to look at various amendments. Um, and, and we see that, that in the, uh, especially in the older conversions where the soil is, is pretty bad, uh, we were able to significantly increase uh, crop yields, whereas we were not successful in doing that with the more fertile soils. Um, and no surprise, we, the same applied to whether you did that with animal manures or mulches as well. Um, so, but but it, it shows that, that you need to know, and that's, that's again, no surprise to any, any agronomist, um, that, 
that some soils respond to certain management, uh, some, some don't. And, and fertility gradients definitely play a role. Um, there, there's a growing interest also to look at, at the soil biology end, um, and there are market differences in the microbial population and diversity, um, and uh, whether there's char, and there, there are some good hints at the functional um, relationship between those, because we can see clear uh, spatial associations here of, of fungal hyphae growing into chars uh, or microorganisms sitting in chars. This is all char. These little little beads are uh, microorganisms. Uh, we see a, a clear functional relation, and that that could potentially explain some of the variation that we haven't been able to explain uh, and have eluded us so, so far. Um, but as as with any microbiology and microbial ecology in soil, this is really um, still a, a, a large playing field for, for science to explain a lot of that, uh, not only in the, in the char arena. Um, how does this all tie together with, uh, with energy and, and, uh, um, and climate? <clears throat> um, there, there are several ways you can, you can find your entry into, into thinking about biochar systems. Um, and that is uh, either you're interested in, in a soil improvement, as I showed you before, you're interested in mitigation of climate change um, because the, the carbon constitutes a, a, a long-term reservoir uh, of carbon. Uh, you could be interested in the energy generation or because you can, you can use a wide, wide variety of materials in the waste management aspect because you have a waste, waste management issue. And we'll, we'll go through a, a few of those um, uh, now and integrate that. And, and the most important word maybe of this whole talk is, is the word system, that this requires really a, a look at the entire material flows um, to make sense uh, of, of um, the uh, a biochar system. What is important to, to realizing the, um, the climate change benefits is um, to, to appreciate that, um, that what, what a biochar pyrolysis transformation is doing is simply retarding the uh, the uh, uh, carbon in the terrestrial environment. Uh, in a terrestrial environment, uh, carbon is fixed through photosynthesis, uh, then a portion of it falls down or is incorporated in soil um, where it decomposes, mineralizes to CO2. In a system, in an equilibrium, there's as much carbon going in as there's carbon going out. Now, in a conceived biochar system, you would... Um, you would transform that flow of carbon that would fall to the soil um, through pyrolysis into char, generate uh, energy that could potentially offset uh, fossil fuel emissions, and that char that would put put in soil has a much longer, um, uh, much longer life in soil, has a higher mean residence time, and therefore less is mineralized um, per unit input than under a, a, a non-char system. Um, so the the, the the trick here, or the approach, is to deviate or to uh, to deviate some of the material that would otherwise have cycled very quickly back in a biological uh, carbon cycle uh, to deviate that into a much slower cycling biochar cycle. Um, so that's that's the conceptual framework. Um, we need to realize that if we're interested in energy, we will of course forfeit some of the energy. Um, here are some a, 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 a life cycle type of approach 
looking at the energy budget from a slow pyrolysis system, comparing whether we put the biochar to energy, so we burn the biochar, because it's essentially most of it is charcoal, uh, um, or we put it to soil. Of course, the energy people say, are you crazy? Do you put this stuff in the soil that we can burn? Um, and, and looking at that from various feedstocks um, uh, point of view. And, and clearly you see that we, where we compromise the energy output. Uh, that's, that's no surprise. We're getting on average somewhere around 30% less energy out if we put the biochar to soil rather than to use it as an energy carrier. But if you're not really only interested in the energy output, but you're interested in avoided emissions, then the picture changes completely. Um, now, if you put biochar to energy, um, you actually can claim less emission reductions, lower emission reductions than if you put the biochar to soil. Um, part of that, a huge part of that is, um, is the, uh, uh, the biochar stability and the biochar carbon itself that compared to its carbon content contains relatively little or less energy than what you already used as a as an energy output, part of it uh, are, are other uh, co-benefits that, that depend on the system, uh, but they're they're a minor portion. Uh, much more than 50% of these of these uh, emission reductions are due to uh, the carbon itself. Um, if we if we look at a little bit broader systems approach with a, with a full life cycle assessment of a uh, which is this is about a two four ton an hour um, bioenergy plant uh, producing uh, electricity. Um, then, then we realize that, that it is important to look at the, not only at the feedstocks, but at the wider uh, biochar, um, biochar systems. And um, you'll, you'll see here uh, some systems where we need to collect stover um, for, from corn growing, uh, where we actually grow switchgrass as a bioenergy crop, or we, we get the yard waste for free. Um, and the greenhouse gas emission budgets are vastly different as if we have to um, add a, a land use change uh, um, uh, emission um, into the equation with this yellow bar here and the dedicated biomass plantations, uh, we get much uh, less emission reductions and in some, under some assumptions even, even a net, net emission generation. Um, and what is, of course, these life cycle assessments, because they're only as good as, as your data are and the data are not yet as good as, as they should be, um, the, the most interesting part is usually the sensitivity analysis. Um, what we can see here is a collection of, of uh, energy is typically um, seen as a, as a big issue. Um, per the energy um, itself uh, doesn't change the energy consumption or, um, or generation doesn't change much with, uh, with even widely different assumption. Um, also, uh, a, a bit greater is, is the uh, emission. Uh, we, we can make uh, larger arrows um, uh, up to yeah, 10, 20 percent possibly um, uh, when we firm up um, better data or recognize ver variation in the landscapes. Um, char yield, how much char we actually can uh, produce is, um, makes uh, quite a bit of difference and there are different um, uh, production conditions, different units that, are, um, that you can conceive. Uh, the stable carbon uh, is potentially very sensitive, but um, uh, and, and even around some some uh, relative conservative uh, areas, there's still some sensitivity. So it makes a big difference whether it's 80 or 90 percent of it is stable. Uh, so that's definitely um, uh, still an area of of active research. 
um, the syngas energy sensitivity is, is quite high. And that's, that's sort of a plea to the engineers uh, to give us better numbers here. Uh, you see here that the net energy, but even the net, net CO2 exchange, um, depending on the assumptions that we can make from, from the peer-reviewed literature, um, get us 60% you know, up and down uh, or 20% up and down. Um, so the, the energy output is, is one of the big unknowns or let's say a big variation in it and, and we don't really understand yet what, what, the, what that is. Um, transportation is a, is a big issue. Um, uh, it's always quoted a big issue and it's, it's um, as you would expect, um, there's, there's some greater sensitivities and some uh, less sensitivities, sensitivities. Transportation distance from zero here shown to, to a thousand kilometer distance uh, for both the biomass and the biochar. Um, you see that the net greenhouse gas emissions are not very sensitive um, to the transportation distance. Uh, net energy quite a bit more and, and the most sensitive is the net revenue which uh, tanks um, uh, below, below zero uh, already um, at, at a few, uh, uh, at, at a, a low transportation distance and this is um, with, with a high revenue scenario. Um, there are some waste management scenarios that we can conceive. Um, there are existing units such as this one uh, from, a, from a chicken farmer in, in West Virginia uh, who operates such a system that produces biochar. At the same time, he's able to offset um, his uh, fossil fuel energy costs and he's producing a biochar that he finds a, a market for at the moment. Um, and uh, so these are, this is an example where uh, this, this could be applied in, in a, in a one-farm system rather than a, a larger-scale uh, um, system. Uh, I'll, I'll skip over these. Um, I, I want to show you some, a very small-scale system uh, with cook stoves. Um, and uh, that's uh, something uh, several groups are working on. These are photos from, from our projects in Africa uh, where we uh, investigate the switch from, from burning, open fire burning, to pyrolysis for uh, generating biochar and cooking at the same time. So what it does is it, it uh, generates char in this, this ring here while it is cooking. So you, while you're making charcoal, you're cooking on the off gases. You're not cooking with the charcoal, you're cooking on the off gases. So your product is a cooked meal and char. Um, that has various implications for greenhouse gas emissions. Um, uh, under normal scenario, you would track into the woods and collect firewood, um, fire your, your uh, pot here, um, and you would generate greenhouse gases and air pollutants. Um, in a biochar cookstove scenario, you would be able to substitute some of the, um, the wood, um, maybe even on the long term all of it, with crop residues, um, leaves, grasses, um, uh, substitute that. Uh, you would generate fewer greenhouse gas emissions and air pollutants, and you would be able to return part of that carbon as in the form of biochar uh, into the soil. Um, that, that, seems to, um, that seems to have uh, a, a rather uh, significant effect on, on your greenhouse gas balances. This is uh, some exercise from one, one of my students uh, looking at a Venzim-driven systems dynamics model incorporating all the carbon flows in such a system. Um, and and uh, uh, looking at the comparison between a, a pyrolytic stove, which are the, um, the, the solid lines, to a uh, improved cook stove, a different improved cook stove in comparison to um, the, the uh, uh, traditional cook stove, which is, which is zero. Uh, 
And uh, we'll see that, of course, both the improved cookstove and the periodic cookstoves have net negative emissions compared to a traditional cookstove. Uh, what we also see is that, um, in this case, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, to-be-claimed emission reductions are very sensitive um, to the fraction of biomass that is non-renewable for the improved cookstove. But because the, the uh, biochar has such a large portion in the overall emission balance, the uh, pyrolytics cookstoves are, are much less sensitive to uh, the amount of non-renewable um, biomass that is used under, under the conventional scenario. Uh, and, and some best estimates are somewhere in the order of a few tons of CO2 equivalents could be um, reduced per year. Uh, that's not a lot in our world. Uh, depending on the carbon price, of course, uh, it's nowhere near there in the U.S. at the moment. But, but it is uh, conceivable in the, in the range where it makes a difference. Uh, to some, some uh, programs, probably never to the, to the um, person itself. Um, it has ancillary benefits that, that I, um, I, uh, you're well aware of in, in terms of the, uh, the uh, diseases and um, respiratory uh, infections uh, and eye infections. Um, and I'll, uh, I'll come back to this system aspect um, where now the question is really, um, can, we, can we harness all these, these benefits? Can we um, have a system uh, where both we can improve soils, generate energy, uh, manage waste, and mitigate climate change? Uh, is it enough if we do only one of them uh, or three of them? Um, which ones will there be? Um, or does it only work from an economic, from a sustainability point of view uh, if we harness uh, all four of them? And, and how many opportunities are there? Um, but I... I think we will, we will um, find that there are, uh, that there are opportunities, and, and for me it's not, a, not necessarily a question whether this is a system that, that could work, but, but where, it, where does it really work? And, and I think when we, when we start knocking at all the opportunities, we'll, we'll conceivably find uh, quite a few of them. Thank you very much for your attention, and if there's time, I'll, I'll still ask some questions. That's correct, yeah. Um, so far, and, and we published a few months ago a paper where you can read the details about that in environmental science and technology. Um, the, um, what I showed you here is the, the comparison between taking the biochar and putting it in soil versus firing the biochar. And uh, if you were to use the biomass to begin with in a very efficient burner and combust it, rather than going the pyrolysis route altogether, the emission reductions uh, of those two are, are roughly the same just on the, on the energy side. However, if you, um, if you are able to, to demonstrate that there are uh, soil carbon benefits or any other benefits of growing more crops, having more soil carbon, uh, that tilts it 
towards the pyrolysis system. But that's, that's a discussion and, and, and that's a consideration that, that is, uh, is clearly there. Uh, without, without any soil responses, those two strategies are, are roughly the same in terms of emission balance, as far as we can tell. Yeah. Sorry. Is there any evidence that when you add the biochar soils that you may either stabilize or destabilize carbon that's already there, such that if you were to prime decomposition by adding this char, you might offset some of those gains? Yeah, now that's a good question, and that, that has been debated, and, and uh, uh, there are and, and that's a longer conversation because there is a, a, a publication um, from 2008 that makes these claims, and I, 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 I think I, I rebuttaled that adequately, and that would take too long here. But uh, I think the body of literature over the last few years shows um, that there's uh, no, no effect of the char itself, the char carbon itself, that catalyzes any of these effects. Uh, these effects are... Uh, uh, seen sometimes, um, and, and my, my interpretation is as a uh, result of uh, either nutrient additions um, or pH effects, uh, but are not, um, there would be the same if you would put fertilizer on. And, and, and so there are, um, there are no, under business of usual, as usual, they would, they would happen anyways. Um, so I don't see any of these, uh, of the effect that some have hypothesized uh, that uh, a, a char would increase microbial populations that would increase the mineralization of existing carbon or litter carbon that comes in. Actually, more of the last two years uh, of uh, research has shown exactly the opposite, that there's a, a greater stabilization. But I think there's still a lot of variation around there that, that this will keep us uh, a bit busy still. But that's a good question, yeah. I'm very interested in that question. So first we'll go here, then we'll come over here. Is, is it roughly true that the effect of biochar uh, is much more pronounced in terms of soil fertility? Um, roughly speaking, that has um, emanated from the past published literature. And um, I, I would, and that's maybe a, a coincidence because um, of the types of soils that, that were used. Uh, I wouldn't distinguish tropical versus, versus temperate necessarily. Um, but uh, um, Definitely, uh, biochar is not a miracle. It, it will only uh, improve a soil that has a problem and a problem that biochar can address. Uh, and one of the, the uh, abilities of biochar, as I showed earlier, is to improve what we call cation exchange capacity. And those, uh, the cation exchange capacity is low in, in soils that have a mineralogy um, that's characterized by highly weathered uh, minerals. And, and those we find very often in, in tropical countries. But, but we also find them somewhere else. Uh, we find them, uh, we find sandy soils in upstate New York. Um, uh, we find acid soils in upstate New York. Um, and we find very fertile soils in the tropics. So it's, um, I, I think, broadly, yes, but no. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm interested in the uh, pre-European uh, Amazon. And uh, do we know how, I mean, apparently biochar was made on an acid scale, or over a long period of time, and I was wondering if we know the technology, how they did that, or was it just from slash? No, we, we don't. Uh, we don't. We, we know it can't be slash and burn, um, because you can't even explain the current 
stocks of, of char carbon in soil um, by a repeated burning either, even over hundreds of years. Um, and there's enough evidence to show that the C, through C14 measurements in, in soil profiles and archaeological digs, that the, that the ages of the char doesn't change all that much from uh, deep down in the soil to, to the top. Um, it's just a maximum of 100, 100 years. So, so it can't be, and, and the amounts don't add up. So it, it can't be a, a slowly, ac slow accumulation over hundreds of thousands of years by, by a single family roaming the area. Um, it must be something else. It must be a, a, a more um, a, a spike or a, a one-time uh, larger application, which you can quantitatively explain by using the entire above-ground biomass of a primary forest and charring all that. But you can't explain it by repeated burning, because the difference between burning and charring in terms of char yield are so great uh, that, that that wouldn't pan out. But the question is still whether this was intentional or not, and I, I'm not sure that anyone will ever resolve that question because we can't ask anymore. Um, but uh, it's, it's certainly, um, it certainly, ha it, it has stimulated the imagination. Um, uh, it, luckily for me, I, I, I can stay at arm's length from that discussion because for me it's enough to know when it was generated. I can see it's still there, I can measure what it does. And that's, that's all I need to know for now. But I, I'm very interested in that question in principle. Yes, yeah, it, it would be nice to know. Underground farms in dry forests, could it be a reason? Underground fires? Um, and you may be thinking about Indonesia and, and bogs burning or so. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, some of it uh, possibly, but uh, in, in terms of the terra preta soils, the, the archaeological evidence is pretty, pretty solid that this is not, um, not an underground burning. Um, and, and great care has been taken uh, to um, sample only those situations where, where this can be uh, firmly excluded. Um, because that is, a, that is a concern, especially for the carbon dating. But these carbon dating folks in archaeological sediments, they're pretty, pretty good in, in avoiding those artifacts. Yeah, but it's something to consider. Uh, you had a brief thing about waste. And I'm kind of puzzled as to why people don't realize that perhaps more biomass that we discard as waste than we grow for fuel. Why there's very little effort to get any kind of real biochar program going with it because it is also a source of probably more than 50% of our water pollution. And if it was pyrolyzed, it could be uh, destroy the germs, the drugs, and the, and the toxics mostly in it. We have EPA now announcing that they're putting limits on certain drugs in drinking water, and putting limits isn't going to stop it. But if we were to pay attention to how we were handling those wastes, we would have a hell of a lot more carbon reduction because those wastes, in many cases, are giving off CO2. They have a natural degrading going on. And then not only on the waste, but all this chipped wood that you find all over from uh, 
public works and stuff trimming up trees, and that's just going out to be recycled back to carbon dioxide, and that's all uh, yeah. possibly usable for, very possibly usable for biochar. Yeah. No, that's, um, I, I agree, and um, there is, there, there are several stakeholders that are, are tackling that, um, that question from, from the waste management angle that, that didn't even concentrate on any opportunities to, to reap uh, carbon credits or, or improve soils, but just for, for waste management. I think, I think it's a valid, valid approach, and, and uh, for sourcing the biomass, it's, it's definitely the, the low-hanging fruit, um, even if you're interested in soil, soil management or uh, carbon trading or, or climate change mitigation, absolutely. Um, and, and it is, it is the, the, the number one uh, area where, where um, pyrolysis and biochar has been tested for now. This, the one example that I showed with, with uh, chicken manure or poultry litter, uh, there, there's more going on in, in Tennessee in the future, hopefully, hopefully something around the Bay Area uh, in, in, uh, in not too far uh, distant future. Um, and uh, there is a, if you're familiar with uh, the WHR bill, then uh, there is, uh, uh, S Senator Harry Reid has passed, uh, pushed through a, a bill through, through Congress uh, that um, uh, is hopefully going into appropriation soon that, that dollars can be spent on research and development uh, of, um, of uh, in management of invasive species. So all the, the pine bark beetle um, trash and invasive species that, that um, could, could be um, processed for making biochar and bioenergy. So there, there are some opportunities. Ah, yeah. Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, uh, these are these are, uh, and there are some companies who sell them, uh, or a variation of that. Not not this type of stove, but but a one chamber, more gasification type of stove. Um, so they're they're on the internet. You can even you can even order them. There some of them are are sold as um, as uh, camping stoves um, because you can drag them along. You don't need gas. Uh, you just gather some leaves and, and debris and you fire them. Uh, some of them have the hitch that they are relying on a little battery and a little engine, um, which is which is fine for us, um, but is is a route that we didn't want to take in developing countries, any moving parts and electricity. We thought we need something else. So we need to rely on natural draft, which makes the whole thing a little bit more complicated. And we wanted to have dual chambers, one for the pyrolysis, the other for the combustion, which makes it also a little bit more non-conventional. Um, but, um, and so we're, we're, still, we're still learning. There's a, there's, there are two or three types of stoves in India that have been deployed on a, on a rather large scale for me, at least thousands to tens of thousands of of, uh, of household. Apparently, I've not counted, but that's what what uh, the projects claim. Um, and uh, while I don't want to criticize these these uh, colleagues, I I think there's still there's still room for for improvement. Uh, some of the stoves that we um, that we were tested, I think there there's still room for quite a bit of of improvement. And that's also uh, a a request to the scientific community to follow up with that. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much. This time is finished. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.